Well, good morning to you. Parkview. It's Christmas week. All right, that's exciting. I thought there would be more whooping. That's okay. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, my name's Thomas. I'm one of your pastors here. It's good to be with you today. It's good to learn Christ together. Parkview Church exists to glorify God through the whole church, making whole disciples of Jesus. And that means today we're here to learn all about Jesus, who he is, what he did uh, from Micah 5. We, we heard that passage uh, read by, wonderfully, by the way, by the Mueller family. Thank you. Wonderful job. Didn't they do great? I was just impressed. Yeah. Um, so if you want to get, if you've got a copy of God's Word, there's a great time to open it. Micah 5 in verses 2 through 5. Well, this week, many of us, I hope, all of us will be able to open a, a couple of Christmas presents. And uh, I don't know about you, but I was just thinking back this week to my childhood and, and how would I have been feeling, you know, several years ago. And I remember a few times where I got, got a present, opened it up. I said, thank you, Mom. What is it? <laughs> I don't know if you're over there. Actually, as I was reflecting, I thought the biggest moment where that happened for me was actually when uh, Katie, my wife, was coming home from our baby shower, having our first baby, I was a little bit ignorant about the things of babies, and um, she said, we got this great gift. You're going to love it. It's, so, it's important. It's going to help us have peace in our home. It's valuable. And then she showed me this. <laughs> Do you guys know what this is? Okay, some of you are about to be horrified. Um, when your baby's sick, it gets snot in its nose, and this helps you get it out. I'll let you figure out how. <laughs> now... It is one of those things where we got this gift, it's wonderful, it's valuable, it's going to give us peace in our home, wonderful. I didn't know how to use it. Where did this come from? How do I do it? How do I actually use it? Um, I think probably most of us today know that God has given us peace. He's given us the gift of peace. But we might feel a little bit like I did when I saw this. What is it? How do I use it? How do I, what does it actually mean for me? Why can it be valuable? How do I actually put it into use? Well, I have good news for you, because God gave us Micah 5 in the Bible, actually in the Bible, to teach us the answers to those questions today. How can we actually have peace and enjoy peace this season, especially as we think about Christ, the coming King, who has come to be Prince of Peace, just like Will reminded us from Isaiah 9, Prince of Peace. So to answer that question, how can we actually have peace and enjoy this gift of peace that God has given we need to learn three lessons, and Micah 5 teaches us three lessons uh, about peace. First of all, what is it? Same things I was asking when I opened this, the nose Frida. What is it? What is peace? Secondly, why do we need it, or why do we lack it? Why do we lack peace? And finally, how can we actually find it? How can we actually enjoy peace? But first, let's ask the Lord. Oh, first, let's send the junior high students out. I haven't done that yet. So if you're a junior high student, go learn Jesus in a different room. Wonderful. Uh, and now let's pray. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet in these dark times. Your word teaches us to be wise in the world that you created. Your word trains us to live righteously your word commands us, calls us, encourages us. Your word does all these things. Lord, help us to receive them today. Finally, your word teaches us your character. Your word teaches us your character, which we see most fully in the person and work of Jesus, your son. Help us today to see 
Jesus, to cherish Jesus, to honor Jesus. Above all, Lord God, honor your name among us. Make your name more significant to us than it was when we walked into this room. Make your reality more real to us than when we walked into this room as we work to obey your command to make disciples, whole disciples, for the glory of King Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. So, first, what is peace? We're going to understand how to use it, what it is, what is it. Uh, so, first, we're, we're doing another thing where we parachute into one of the minor prophets, just that Dave did a great job of sort of explaining where we were last week. And to understand Micah 5, we're going to need to understand a little bit about the book of Micah as a whole. First of all, Micah is a prophet. Uh, often when we think of prophets, we think of people who are telling you about the future. In this case, that is what Micah's doing. But often, prophets simply told people what God was saying. Um, they simply spoke for God. And so God came to Micah and said, I have a word to say to my people. And so Micah went down to the temple in Jerusalem, and he, as people were coming in, he proclaimed the words that we read in Micah, the whole book of Micah, to God's people. And so uh, God sent Micah with this message for his people. Uh, he was sent to warn Israel, the, the nation of God's people, that their, their society, their nation, had become so rampantly wicked that God was going to have to intervene. Uh, if you, if you want to flip through, you can actually just sort of look at uh, the headings in your Bible are not sort of inspired words of God, but they're often really helpful to just if you're glancing through something. Chapter 2, well, chapter 1, you can see where God sort of pronounces what's happening, the coming destruction in my Bible, it says. Chapter 2, woe to the oppressors. Uh, and you can just glance through there and see some of the just awful things that were going on in, in the time, that time in, in Israelite society. Uh, the more powerful were stealing and, and taking away things from the less powerful. It was just a, a messy scene. Chapter 3, rulers and prophets denounced. It turns out the rottenness in Israelite society was not just at the bottom, just not just at the top, but everywhere in between. <laughs> Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. The people who should be, by the way, the, you know, the most exemplary people in their society. Isn't it for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil? Who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones? Who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? That's a stark image, <laughs> okay? Uh, now, I don't think this is speaking literally. I don't think the leaders were chopping up people like cannibals. Uh, they were saying they were so intent on stripping their people of every resource that they could get that, it, that this scene was the best way that you could describe it. This was, the world had gone wrong in Israel, and God was coming to set things right, at least for a time. And because of the wickedness of their nation, God was coming rightly to discipline them. Um, and God's discipline would come in the form of exile. And we've talked about this a few times, especially as we've been in the Minor Prophets, this word exile. Um, it does mean that God is, God's people will end up dislocated. They'll be outside of the land that God had given them. Um, but exile isn't sort of a magic word or like a transporter machine where God just sort of magically, ah, the people are no longer in Israel, they're in Assyria or they're in Babylon. No, uh, exile means war. <laughs> it means an invading army is coming to Israel somehow by God's hand to discipline God's people, they will be overthrown in battle, they will be overpowered, their cities will be seized, and they will be carried off to a nation that they don't know. That's what exile 
means. Maybe you remember uh, when we were spending a lot of time in Deuteronomy in this last spring and summer about all the, the wonderful moment in Israel history when God brought his people into that land and everything that that meant. And now the threat is, and what's coming, is that they will be removed from that land through war. And so you can just sort of imagine, I'm trying to set the scene here for you as we open up Micah 5. Here's what's happening. Here's where those words were spoken. You can imagine the comfortable Israelites in this terrible society, but they're showing up to the temple. They're hoping, you know, just like we showed up to church this morning, they're showing up to the temple hoping to get some good music, okay? Maybe an encouraging, uplifting message. And instead, Micah turns up and gives them coming destruction, exile, everything's a mess, and because of your rampant wickedness, war is coming and you will be dislocated from your land. Wow. If you're an Israelite and you've just, I came to church for this, <laughs> I, came to, I came to the temple for this, what would you be pleading for? What would you be praying for? What would you be hoping for above all else? Peace. Oh my goodness, peace. No, let it not happen. Please give us peace. Let there not be war. Let not the invading army come and carry us away. Give us peace. And it's in that context that we read our passage today. That's the lens through which we want to learn peace, is from a people who are experiencing just the opposite. A people whose circumstances are anything but peace, who are sitting and waiting, who knows when and who knows how, this terrible fate is coming because of our wickedness, and so they are crying out for peace. And the lesson that was needed for them, we see clearly in Micah 5, the lesson that was needed for them is the same one that's needed for us now. God's peace is probably not exactly what you were expecting. And that's why the first question we need to ask is, what is peace? What is peace as God defines it? It says this in Micah 5, um, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one is, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You want peace? You've just heard about all the, all the discipline, all the wrath that's about to come on you in the form of this invading army. Well, here is Micah's assurance. Here is Micah's word of peace. A, a leader is coming. I'm not sure when. You're going to have to wait. When he comes, he'll fix things. You'll have peace because he himself will be your peace. I have to imagine that they would have responded, huh? I, I wanted you to say, just kidding. The bad circumstances are going to change. Uh, okay, if you guys do X, Y, Z, then you'll have peace. Instead, he promises something different. Clearly, God defines peace differently than they did then. And one of the key lessons that they needed to learn was how God defines peace. And that's what we need to learn first today. Uh, one, of the, one of my favorite stories in sort of our family lore, the little stories that get passed around at holidays and when we get together, was one time, this, this must have been, at this point, 40 years ago, no, probably more than that, probably 50 or 60 years ago, my grandfather sent my uncle out 
uh, with the car, the family car. He was about 16 or 17, new driver. And um, he said, hey, why don't you go fill up, the, fill up the tank? He headed out to the gas station. He gave him some money. And so he headed out there. He got up to the pump. He looked at the pump. He said, might as well get the cheaper one. And he grabs the nozzle, which happened to be green. He put it in the car, filled it up, and he got home. And guess what? The car stopped working. Has anyone ever done that? Okay, he put diesel in his car, in a gasoline car, and that's what happened. And it wasn't long before uh, the grandfather found out, my grandfather found out, because the car just stopped working. Um, he thought, he heard the word fuel, he said, fill up the tank, and he said, I'm going to fill up the... He did what he said, right? I put fuel in the tank. I did exactly what you said. We're using the same word, fuel, right? Well, my grandfather meant gas, and my uncle meant diesel, and, and it was a huge problem. Uh, we can sometimes use the same word to mean totally different things. When God uses the word peace, we need to use his definition for the word of peace. Otherwise, we'll end up like my uncle, putting the wrong kind of fuel in our car, and we shouldn't be surprised when our lives break down. <laughs> so... First, let's make a few observations about what, from this passage about what this kind of peace looks like. First, we have to see that peace means, first, vertical peace with God. Peace between God and man. We see that in verse 4. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Uh, we are meant... Peace means living in line with our creator, in relationship with the one who made us. It means knowing him. It means being led by him. Uh, this image of a shepherd taking care of his flock, taking care of individual sheep, is one of the most prevalent ones in the Old Testament. It's one of the ways that God describes his relationship with his people. You might think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want, I shall lack nothing. Uh, peace means vertical peace with God. It means a relationship with God, enjoying his care and concern for you and letting him lead you. Vertical peace with God would then lead to sort of horizontal peace with humans. That's not really the emphasis here, but we do see that in verse 3, you see, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return. There will be some kind of reunification. But finally, it says, he himself shall be their peace. And if there were one place to camp out in this passage, I think that's it right there. He himself shall be their peace. Vertical peace with God and enjoying vertical peace with God, regardless of circumstances, means this. It means that the whole world can go wrong. It means all of your circumstances can be upside down. You can have war, you can have pestilence and disease, and all these kinds of things going on. But the things that matter most can never be taken away from you. Isn't that what peace feels like? Peace is knowing that no matter what is going on in my life, things can't actually, finally, go completely wrong because I can never lose the thing that matters most to me. This is, this is not the world's peace. This is not the definition that you would get from the dictionary, that you would get from your friends. This is not, in fact, Jesus says that in John 14. You might remember he says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give. My peace is not like the world's peace that's contingent upon your circumstances, that makes, makes you feel chaotic and shaking every time the things that you care most about are touched. My peace is myself. He himself shall be their peace. 
what the Israelites did and what we're tempted to do as well is that we skip over the need for vertical peace with God in that relationship and we think only about the side effects, the, the things that God can do for us to stop our wars, to end our discipline, to give us a sense of internal calm, to only think of peace as sort of psychological well-being. But what God says, <laughs> we, we want a change in our circumstances that will give us peace, but God wants a change in our soul that will give us unassailable peace. We must first linger over this point that, that we must let God the creator define peace for us. He is our creator. And, and just like my, my uncle got it wrong by putting diesel in, in where it didn't belong, if we have a different definition, we can't be surprised when our lives start to break down. We're looking for peace, and what we find is doesn't sustain us. So what is peace? First of all, we have to say, what is it? Peace, according to the Bible, is actually God's gift of his presence and care for us. His favor, his love for us. God, knowing that God is in control, and that because he's in control, my life, in the end, can actually not go all, all that far off course. That is to say, the best things that I have can't be taken away from me. Now, that's, that's what peace is, according to this passage. But why do we lack peace? That doesn't tell us why we lack peace or why we need it. First, you have to remember Micah's audience. Uh, facing war, defeat, dislocation, what kind of peace do you think they were expecting? They were expecting simply a, a lack of war, a lack of conflict, a lack of stress, a lack of discomfort in their lives. Uh, but then we see in verse 3 that this future vision of peace doesn't look like what they would have expected. Because remember it says, therefore he shall give them up. Give them up, as in exile still coming. The, the army is still coming. The circumstances are still not going to be ideal. And yet... He shall be their peace. Their problem was that they wanted peace on their terms. And as you, as you read the whole book of Micah, what comes across as clear as ever is that the problem in Micah's day was that they, they wanted the blessings of God without the leadership of God. They wanted, they wanted to define the terms and then just have God sign the check. They wanted God, God's blessings, without God himself. And God says, peace is coming, and yet you don't understand peace. Peace is me, myself. They lack peace because they wanted peace on their own terms. They wanted God to meet their expectations. They didn't want sort of life with God, peace with God, which is often good and great, even despite our circumstances. Rather, they just wanted a tidy little life. Life as I deserve, life, life as I desire. And so instead of seeking God's will and aligning themselves with what he wanted for their place and time and for who they were, they wanted peace on their terms. And when humans set the terms for what is good and for what peace looks like, inevitably our vision is way, way, way too small. Take a look at verse 4. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. We have this, this shepherding, this comprehensive metaphor that God will care for us. It's, it's God directing our lives the way that the sheep is directed by the sheep. He knows what we cannot know. Shepherds, I don't know if you know, are smarter than sheep. They know what sheep need. They're taller than sheep. They can see things that are coming from further away. Uh, they can see the big picture. They can guide us into blessing, into true peace. We see in verse 5, he himself, he shall be their peace. That word peace is the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. It has much more in mind than simply the absence of conflict, the absence of war. We might think, okay, what's the opposite of war? Peace, well, 
not exactly. Um, when the Bible talks about peace, when it talks about shalom, and this is something throughout the Old Testament, it's talking about something much more holistic than just a lack of people taking up arms against one another. War is obviously a corruption of peace, no matter how we define it. But the opposite of war isn't just a ceasefire, is it? It's not just us sort of putting down our weapons and saying, I'm not going to be in open hostility with you anymore. The opposite of war is reunification. It's harmony. It's restoration. Our vision of peace often just stops when the circumstances are ended, that we don't like are ended. God has something much bigger in store. Shalom, God's peace, is God bringing the world out of its craziness and into divine sanity. It's God bringing the world back to the way that he created it to be. As God looks, looked at the world in Micah's day in all of its craziness, I just read you one verse of it, and you must have seen how crazy it was. As God looks at Micah's day in all of its craziness and our day in all of its craziness, what he sees is a broken down beater, choppy, crappy car rolling down the street, rolling to a stop on the side of the road, and his ambition is not just to do a quick fix to get it rolling again. God comes in and wants to make it look like it just rolled off of the factory floor. God's peace, God's shalom, he himself shall be their shalom, he himself shall be their peace, is holistic. It is comprehensive. God's peace is a world put to rights. Our experience of that, it does mean psychological well-being. It does mean comfort in a certain sense. It does mean contentment. It does mean a lack of hostility. But for us at the heart and in, in the trenches of everyday existence and dishes and relationships and everything that's going on, it means knowing with certainty that no matter what I face, that you are right where God has placed you in his plan to make the world look like it ought to look. Our vision for peace is far too small. God is making a beautiful world, and he has a part for us to play. Now, he might take us to some dangerous places to do that, but if we know that we have the shepherd's care, we'll do it with confidence. We are often, often, always, often at least, lacking peace because we're holding God to a promise that he never made. He promises to be our peace in the midst of his great rescue plan to bring the world back to the way that he made it. He is doing it through just what we are talking about all the time, through his church, making whole disciples, whole followers of Jesus who worship him in spirit and truth. And sometimes it's really uncomfortable. Has anyone else found that to be true? <laughs> but if we are drawing near to the good shepherd in his care, for us vertically, we can have the internal peace with com with, which comes with knowing that we are right where we need to be, even if it feels incredibly dangerous and uncomfortable. Uh, I don't know if you guys are big movie fans, but uh, I, I often find myself watching one of those great sort of summer action movies, sort of the just sort of popcorn flick, not a great story, not a great, but it's just you just it's just fun to watch. And um, one of my favorite scenes, often sort of see these in like a spy movie or some kind of action movie, is where one of the characters has gone sort of behind enemy lines, they've gone into the building that's being guarded, where all the enemies are, and they need to get the memory stick or whatever, and they get in and they've got it, but suddenly they've been, they've been made. They know they're there, the, the guys are like full alert, the alarm is going off in the building, how am I going to get out without being detected? 
Well, good news, because there's always the guy out in the van who is hacked into the system of the building, and he's got all the cameras on his computer screen, and he's doing lines of code. I don't know what he's doing. Michael Hype probably knows. He knows all about all that stuff. He does quantum computers. I don't know what that means, but he knows. Michael's probably the guy in the van. And so they've got the videos, and they've got control of the doors, and so from above, they can sort of see, okay, you got to go left. Push the button on the door. Okay, now, go straight. Okay, and they see, oh, there's some enemies coming. So I tell them, no, no, stop, go right. And I, my favorite moment in that scene, which I, it's probably just a total Hollywood cliche, but that's the point, is, is when they get to the situation where, okay, there's guys on the left, there's guys on the right, and right in front of me is free. And the person on the, on their, in their little earpiece says, no, you have to go left, you have to go through those guys. And they go, what? No way. I'm just going to go straight because it's clear. And they say, no, you don't understand. And what the guy in the van, they show it. There's a bunch of guys. If you go straight, it's terrible. It's the worst thing you could do is go straight. Left, it looks like danger, but it's actually the way of peace. It's actually the way to get out of it. <laughs> Why do I say all this? That tense moment when, when the person who knows better than you do tells you, you actually need to go toward danger to have peace. Isn't that what it's like with God? If, if the guy in the van, we trust them because they know a little bit better than we do about the situation, and you go, yeah, listen to the guy. You're, you're sitting in the theater going, listen to him. Come on, go left. You got to, because you know what they don't know. God knows much more, uh, uh, 10,000 degrees of magnitude more than we do as we navigate life, and he is sort of the proverbial man sitting in the van knowing everything that we couldn't possibly know and speaking to us through his word and through prayer, guiding us. And we come to things that look dangerous, and we go, no, Lord, no, it's dangerous. I see. There's a straight path right ahead. Let's go that way. He knows. And if we were to look at ourselves and look at ourselves and rewind and watch ourselves in the theater and say, go left, you, come on, just go. Just listen to him. But how can we know? That's, that's sort of the point, though, isn't it? How can we know that he sees what we don't see? That if, if he calls us into danger into things that look uncomfortable, that will feel uncomfortable, that will be uncomfortable, that, that he will be with us, that he's actually guiding us toward green pastures and still waters and in paths of goodness and blessing? How can we be sure? How can we be certain? It's scary. It's, it's easy to say, isn't it? Sort of from the bird's eye view and say, yeah, go left. But it's not going to be easy, is it? I look out here and I know that you know it. He has goals for your life and mine, for your life and mine, that will require you to run toward what at the moment appears like great danger, but is in fact ultimate peace, if we will let him define the terms. Now, how can we know? How can we, how can we know that he will be trustworthy? The reason we lack peace is, first of all, our vision of peace is just far too small, and we have to say at this point, too, is because we, we lack trust in the heart of the shepherd. We lack trust in the heart of God that if we really give our lives to him, maybe you're here and you're not even, you wouldn't even call yourself a believer in this, this God, this Bible. How can I know that if I were to give my life to him, to really turn it over and say, lead me, I'll, I'll put the earpiece in my ear, so to speak, and let, me, let you tell me to walk toward danger? How will you know that he will take you only toward paths of blessing, to paths of goodness, paths of joy, paths of true peace, ultimate peace? Well, first, that, that means we need to know how to find peace. That's the third thing we learn. 
Well, I'll spoil it right away. And it's the Christmas season, so no one will be surprised that the answer has to do with Jesus. Micah 5 uh, is, has, is quoted a couple of times in the New Testament, and one of those is in Matthew 2, 6. Uh, and that's where the wicked King Herod, uh, who is terrible, we won't get into it, but he goes to the Israelite leaders of the day, and he says, I've heard that the Savior is coming. I've heard, I know, I've heard about this. Where would he come from? And the Israelite leaders of the day, which, by the way, they're no fans of Jesus, um, they, they quote Micah 5 to him, Bethlehem. They say he'll be born in Bethlehem. They use this prophecy to say that's where Jesus will be born. And, of course, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. That's what we're celebrating this week. He's born in Bethlehem, he grows up, and he self-consciously fulfills every expectation that Micah 5, 2 through 5, lays out for him. He, he was ancient. You, you see that? He will be a ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He has divine origins, and he claims to be God. His birth was not the beginning of his life, but simply his entering into human history, uh, putting on, adding to his own nature, human nature, so that he can really be one of us. His life and mission did unite God's people, and we'll see the other place where, where Micah 5 is quoted in the New Testament talks about that even more. And he calls himself the great shepherd. I am the good shepherd who shepherds the sheep, he says um, in the Gospel of John, who has come to care for God's flock. And in fact, access to the Father is only through me. And all that is great. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Jesus came and he fulfilled what this passage says. But how does he actually deliver the peace that this passage promises, the shalom that this passage predicts? How does this life actually show us the way to peace? How can we actually find peace in those moments when you don't want to wash the dishes, when your friend has said this thing that is horrifying, when in those moments when God is calling you, especially in the path of making disciples, uh, to do things that are uncomfortable, that hurt, that risk, they feel very risky. Because Jesus is the true king who spent his whole life pursuing and enjoying vertical peace with God, following God's will. There was never a more peaceful person than Jesus. You read through the four Gospels, that's the picture that emerges is a man who, whether people were trying to shove him off of a mountain or they were debating him in the great, in, uh, in the temple, trying to put him on the spot. He was a man of immense peace. But then, on Jesus' last night on earth, something changed. Instead of Jesus composed and unassailably peaceful, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, shaking, and anxious. My soul is troubled even unto death. My soul is sorrowful. Instead of Jesus peaceful and buoyant, we see Jesus on the cross in severe distress, crying out, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me in the midst of my suffering? And his question bounced off the brown's heavens. No response, no peace. Why? Because on the cross, every bit of peace, every ounce of shalom was removed from Jesus and he was consumed by darkness why so that when you enter darkness the same kind no not the same type of darkness that Jesus faced you can be sure that your peace will never be taken away on the cross Jesus lost his father's face he lost his vertical uh, relationship with God so to speak so that when you face the darkness 
that threatens to rob you of God's presence, you never will. On the cross, Jesus suffered the penalty of our sin, of all the ways that we want to set the definitions and write the checks for God to to sign. He experienced all the chaos and conflict on the cross that we deserve so that we can be confident in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our sin, that God has not turned his back on us. We lack peace often uh, because of suffering that's not our fault, but also because of sin that is our fault. And on the cross, Jesus dealt with both by having the utter lack of peace poured onto himself in your place. So that we can be confident in the midst of our suffering, God is with us. He is the shepherd that he promises in Micah 5. He will lead us always, no matter what it looks like, toward true peace, in true peace. And it gets better. Because Jesus did not stay in his grave. No. God raised him up, showing that peace is available to us now. God was not content to have a ceasefire with you. God was not content to have peace in his vertical relationship with you that merely ended with him pouring out wrath. End of story. Now you have a blank record of good and bad. Now I'm just not mad at you anymore. That's what, that's what we often think of peace, just a lack of war. God is not content with just a ceasefire with you. Instead, Jesus took his perfect peaceful record, perfect peaceful trust of God the good shepherd and wrote your name at the top because he took your sinful record and wrote his name at the top. So now you've switched places and all of the favor that his peaceful life and his trusting life of his father deserves is now yours. When you walk into those situations, God is as concerned for you as caring for you in the situations he has called you to, even the risky situations he has called you to, he is as concerned for you as he is for his perfect son. God does not want a ceasefire. He wants sons and daughters. And God raised Jesus from the dead so we can be with him forever, enjoying the peace that he has promised, the shalom that Jesus predicted, that this passage predicted, that one day he would set his world to rights. He will do it. And he's beginning to do it through you today. He himself will be our peace. And now Jesus is in heaven. He's given us his spirit so that we can be agents of peace, doing things that look risky to the outside world, knowing that we're being directed by our divine father, our good shepherd, into things that feel risky. But those are often the things that move the world toward what God is building. So let's come to him. I do not know what is going on in your world right now. I don't know. Maybe there's something obvious in your mind that you think, what is causing a lack of peace in my heart? And it's just obvious. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just a daily accumulation of distress over the things that just, your personal responsibilities, your relationships, and the moment-by-moment stress of life. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He will receive you like this true shepherd king. Love you, forgive you, open back up the vertical relationship with God, so that you can have peace no matter what life is calling you toward, no matter what he is calling you toward. Let's go to him in prayer now. Heavenly Father, praise you that you are the prince of peace, that in you we have forgiveness, but we have more. Lord, we have your favor. We can know with confidence because of what Christ has done that no matter what we are called toward, no matter what this Christmas season holds, you will be with us. You will lead us as the good shepherd king 
toward goodness and blessing. Thank you for proving that that promise is true on the cross. Thank you for proving that you will bring the world to rights, that you will bring true peace, that you yourself, Lord, what can you give us more than yourself? You yourself are our peace. And do all this, we pray, for the glory of King Jesus. Amen.